Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Pray that more will come, right? Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you giving praise and thanksgiving to your name. Lord, praise because you alone are worthy of our worship. And Father, thanksgiving that we have the great privilege to come together and study your word. Thank you for the book of Ezekiel and how it gives us a clear picture of what is yet to be. Father, thank you that in your wisdom you've given us this pattern of the of the temple. And I pray that it would drive us to give you greater worship even in our lives today. So we're grateful for your spirit who illumines our minds and shows us the truth. Pray that we'd be faithful to live out the things that we see in the scriptures that we might bring praise to your name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is week number 39 in our study of the really the plan of God. I think we're going to have to rename the study from eschatology to just the great plan that God has. And um, we've been for the last uh, five weeks, really, in beginning in chapter 40 of, uh, of Ezekiel, 40 through 43, what we've seen is described in great detail, um, really the pattern or the plan of what the temple in the millennial kingdom is going to look like. And there's a lot of things we don't know. We don't know who builds this temple. We don't know exactly when it's built. Is it built before the millennial reign? Uh, during the tribulation time, or is it built after the millennial reign starts? We don't know. We don't know who builds it. Um, the only place where we've seen anything about building is building the altar after God goes into the temple. So there's a lot we don't know, but we've certainly seen, given what we've, what we've looked at so far, if you were charged with building this temple you have everything you need to be able to build it in the exact replica of what God has described. And like we've said, this, this whole section, uh, chapter 40 all the way through 48, is descriptive. There's no action that's taking place other than God entering the temple. That's the only thing that we've seen that actually happens in these chapters that we've been looking at. So they're a description of what um, the millennial kingdom looks like and in, in proper the temple itself. So we've seen how the temple is to be built and what it looks like. We've seen the altar and what it is to look like and how we looked last week at how it is to be cleansed and inaugurated, put into action with an eight-day festival in which God gives great detail of how the sacrifices are to be done, who's to do them, how many times a day, um, what animals are to be sacrificed, all of that we looked at last week. So we've seen the temple, the altar, and the inauguration of the altar. So what's left is the practice of the Levitical priests. What do, what do the Levitical priests do um, during this time of the millennial reign of God. And so that's what the next chapter moves into. 
um, is really the activity of the of the priests and what does their garb look like what does their hair look like um, what can they do what can't they do where do they do it uh, when do they do it all of that is prescribed in this next chapter that we're getting ready to look at which is chapter 44 but before Ezekiel gets into all those details as God gave, gave them to him. He introduces or just mentions one name, the prince. And that's kind of where we left off last week was just seeing that this, what I believe is a person, exists. And so I want to walk through um, some descriptions that Ezekiel gives of this guy named the prince so we can determine um, what's so unique about him? What does he do? Because um, he's going to be mentioned, I don't know, it's 30 or 40 times over these last five chapters, and mainly in the next three chapters. So he's important, he's prominent. And so we'll begin just by reading the first three verses. We read these last week, but they're worth repeating, of chapter 44 of Ezekiel. So beginning in verse 1, Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in as for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So you, you've got the eastern gate, and I'll show you in a minute. We're, we're clear that this is the gate from the outer court to the inner court. Uh, it's not the one to get into the temple area, but it's the one to go from the outer court to the inner court. So the only people who are allowed in the inner court um, are the Levitical priests. And, but the people can go to the porches of these gates and can stand on the porches because that's where the sacrifices are done. That's where they have to take their animals um, to be sacrificed. And so the people can go on the porches, but they can't go down into the court. And so this gate that leads from the outer court to the inner court is shut. And it's shut because it's special. Because this is the gate that God used to enter to the temple proper, into the nave and into the Holy of Holies. And so it's shut, but it doesn't stay shut all the time. So I want to show you some of these things just so we have a, a right understanding. If you look over in... Um, Chapter 44, I believe, 46. In chapter 46, just the first couple of verses here. Thus says the Lord God, the gates of the inner court facing east shall be shut the six working days, but it shall be opened on the Sabbath day and open on the day of the new moon. The prince shall enter by way of the porch of the gate from outside and stand by the post of the gate. Then the priest shall provide 
his burnt offering and his peace offering, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate and then go out. But the gate shall not be shut until the evening. Okay, so this gate is shut. No one can ever go in and out of it. But on the Sabbaths and on the new moons, it's opened so that the prince and the people can worship God on the outside of that gate looking in. So the prince can go to the doorpost, but he can't go through the doorway. And that's what is being pictured here. And he often goes on to the porch to eat um, in, in before the people. So um, now you, a lot of people think that this prince is Jesus Christ. But I think the scripture right here and what we just read is very clear that it's not Jesus Christ. Because you notice that he goes to the doorpost to worship God. And of course, Jesus Christ being God would never go to the doorpost to worship God. So that tells me it's not Jesus Christ. There are a couple of other things that, that gives us that same indication. Um, if you look at 44, 40, let me see, where is it? In 44.16, and then like I said, he's mentioned many times through here, then it's describing his property and his land and that kind of thing. And in verse 16 of chapter 44, it's not right. 44.16. Well, that's not right. Hmm. Well, I'm looking at 45.16, and that doesn't look right either. It talks about the prince having sons. He has children, and he can give them... <laughs> well, I don't see it right now. We'll, we'll, come a we'll come across it, but I don't see it at this moment. But he has children. Because he gives inheritances to his children. And of course, we don't... 46.16? Yeah. Thus says the Lord, if the prince gives a gift of, out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall be belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. So this prince that we're talking about has children. And of course, we will, don't believe that Jesus Christ will have children in the millennial kingdom. You know, there's a lot of heresy that says he had children when he was on the earth, he had multiple wives. So it's just, the scripture doesn't give us that, right? And so they're just making that kind of stuff up. But here, clearly, this prince um, worships God, he has sons, so this would not be Jesus Christ, okay? But he is still a prominent guy in the millennial kingdom. The, the title prince, let me show you, I mean, prince can be used to speak of Jesus Christ. Back in, I'll find it, chapter 37. 
24 and 25. Now this, I believe, does speak about Jesus Christ. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes, statutes and observe them. They will live on the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. So I believe that's speaking about Jesus Christ on the um, throne of David, ruling over the millennial kingdom. And if so, then he's called a prince. And so you say, was well, that the same prince that's over in chapter 44? And it's not. I mean, clearly we've seen that this is not Jesus Christ because of the things that he does. And this term prince it really just means one who is elevated for either social or religious reasons, political reasons or religious reasons. And here, Jesus Christ is elevated for political reasons because he rules as king of the whole creation during the millennial reign. The prince over in chapter 44 is elevated because he is prominent in the religious service of God. So he's, nowhere does it say he's a Levitical priest. He probably is not. He's of some other descent. We don't know what tribe he's from. But he is a prominent figure all throughout the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, as we'll see, he's the guy who provides all the animals for sacrifice. He provides the grain for sacrifice. So um, he's very, very important, but he's not Jesus Christ. Okay, so we'll see, we'll come back to him after we get through chapter 44. The rest of chapter 44, other than these first three verses, describe um, the Levitical priests that are separated into two groups as we've seen. You have those who are the sons of Zadok, and you have those who are not. So the vast majority of the Levitical priests are not the sons of Zadok, but they still are there. And it's, it's kind of strange language that he used to describe them as you go through this, um, this chapter. Uh, matter of fact, it's, until you get to the end, it's a little difficult to understand what he's saying. So let's just read beginning in verse 4. And this is a description of the Levitical priests who are not the sons of Zadok. And notice what he says about them. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well See with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all its laws and mark well the entrance of the house with all of its exits of the sanctuary. You shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel, 
when you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, my fat, and the blood, for they made my covenant void, this in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offerings and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, and they shall not come near to me to serve as priests to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they will bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house and all its servants and all of them and all of and of all that shall be done in it. Now, it, this is a little hard for me to understand because we're talking about in the temple of God and the Levitical priests who are set apart to minister in the temple of God, and yet God says they shall bear their iniquity and their punishment during the millennial reign. So this doesn't sound like what you usually hear talking about the millennial reign. You, you've got to be kidding. There's people who are being punished because of their ancestry. And absolutely. What, what this shows us is how significant it was to God that Zadok remained faithful even while most of the other priests were unfaithful, if not all of the other priests. And this goes all the way back to when we looked at it last time when uh, Absalom and uh, Donajai um, rebelled or really had an insurrection against their father David the king and most of the priests went and supported those two guys but Zadok did not Zadok stayed faithful to David and traveled with David when he had to run for his life during those times uh, went to the caves with David um, eventually came back to Jerusalem with David and anointed Solomon to be the king after David so Zadok was faithful so it's not so much what the others did, although he clearly mentions that, it's how faithful Zadok was. And so Zadok and his children and his descendants are being rewarded for their faithfulness in a time when Israel was mostly unfaithful. So, but these, these guys, while they're, they're priests, okay, they're Levitical priests, they don't get to go 
close to the Lord. They have to stay in the outer court. And these are the guys you can, you saw it in there. These are the ones who keep the gates. They keep order in the temple. They probably help escort the people and their animals to go to the right place. They go up on the porch of the, uh, the three gates, two gates that lead to the inner court and they slaughter the animals, but they don't get to all sacrifice the animals. Once they slaughter them, they hand them over to the sons of Zadok who then put them on the altar. And so these guys have a significant role, but it always will be in their mind during the millennial kingdom that they're being punished and not allowed to go into the inner court because of the unfaithfulness that their ancestors had. Now these guys, as we've seen, all of these people are true believers. All of them have uh, been circumcised in their heart They've been given the Holy Spirit. We saw that back in chapter 36. So these are true believers, and yet there's a level of shame that they bear. Go ahead. You want to say something? Yes. Does this mean just the literal sons of Zadok are all his descendants? All his descendants. I mean, those are... Oh, there will be numeral. I mean, lots of them. Now, realize that during the tribulation time, that there's a lot of people who are killed, and that includes a lot of Jews. Now, whether those Jews are believing or unbelieving, probably most of them are unbelieving. And so they're not here, because they haven't been resurrected yet, because that resurrection comes at the end of the millennial reign, when the unbelievers are resurrected. So they're not here. And if they were here and they did believe and were killed in the tribulation, they're in glorified bodies, and so they're still not here. They're reigning over other areas of the world. So these are people who are normal humans that we see here. These are human beings just like you and I. Um, they are saved just like you and I and have the Holy Spirit just like we do today. And they still sin because they're still humans. They're just like we are. And as we still sin, they still sin. So you have to get the right picture, right? There's a lot of people who've been resurrected and are in glorified bodies. But that's not who we're talking about here. These are people who live through the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. These are the people who God hid in the desert for three and a half years so that Satan couldn't find them. That's who this is. And there may have been some in other nations who lived and now have been brought back to Israel don't know exactly and then there's a whole lot of other people who are still alive who are normal humans that live through the tribulation into the millennial kingdom and some of them are believers and some are unbelievers those who are in Israel mostly are true believers and that's when he starts talking about the foreigners here these are, there will be a lot of foreigners in Israel during the Millennial Kingdom. Some of those will be saved and some won't be saved. If you're not saved, look at verse 9 of this chapter that we just read through. I think it's verse 9. Then the Lord God, then says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh. Who's that? 
That's an unbeliever. That's one who doesn't give allegiance to Jesus Christ because he's not circumcised in his heart. All the foreigners who, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. So they can't even go into the temple area because they don't give allegiance to Jesus Christ. They're in the land of Israel because there will be a lot of people who parade through Israel to give allegiance to Jesus Christ because he's the king of the whole world. But that doesn't mean they believe in him. And so there's a lot of foreigners in Israel, but those foreigners, if they're uncircumcised in heart, meaning they're unbelievers, they can't go in here. They're not allowed in. We have already seen that. That's why they're guards at the gates. That's one of the jobs of the Levitical priests who are not the sons of Zadok are to keep those people out. They're not allowed in. I don't even know if they're allowed to come in the mile-wide area around the temple. It doesn't say anything about that, but here clearly they can't go into this area. So it, there's a lot going on here that is not the way that I typically think about the Millennial Kingdom. And these guys, because they can't go into the inner court, I mean, they have to stop. And who knows what would happen to them if they did? Because the glory of God is in there. And there's something special about the glory of God because we'll see in a minute, the priests even have to take off their garments that they wear in there so that it says holiness will not be transferred to the people who are in the outer court. Don't know exactly what that means. Don't know what that looks like, but it's one of the ordinances of God. So there, there have been several divisions of this book of Ezekiel once we got to chapter 40 and we're in the Millennial Kingdom. And I want to just show you this, um, if I can find where I noted it. Um, I know one place is way back at the very beginning of Ezekiel. And you, you, you saw this charge given to Ezekiel to look with your eyes, hear with your ears, and talk, tell this to the people. And all the way back in Ezekiel, at the very beginning, chapter 1 or might be 3 where he's actually commissioned, You, you see some of it in chapter 3 in um, verse 4. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So God wants Ezekiel to be his spokesman to the people. That is the whole purpose of the book, is so Ezekiel can speak to the people. But once you get to the millennial kingdom, in chapter 40, he says it again. And he says, at the very beginning of chapter 40, in verse 4, the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, 
and give attention to all that I'm going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you, declare to the house of Israel all that you see. So you see, this is the purpose for all these details being given so that Ezekiel can sit before Israel and give them these words that they might be encouraged while they're in exile in Babylon. But he comes in in chapter 44, let me see. In, in 40 through 43, what he's given them is the pattern of the temple. And that's what God has told him to give to the people. But now, when he comes to chapter 44, you'll notice that he says, not the pattern of the temple. Look in verse 5. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning the statutes of the house of Israel. So he's given them what the temple looks like and how to build it and exactly what it should look like. But now he's going to talk to them and for here for the next, really all the way to the end of the book, this is what is to be practiced. These are the statutes. These are the rules. These are the regulations of how to worship God during the millennial reign. So he gives them, I mean, God has been very logical and very precise in all that he gave him. The first 33 chapters all about the destruction of Jerusalem and it's going to happen and it's going to happen soon and then you get into the war that we looked at at the end of the age and then you get to the temple in chapters 40 through 43 and he gives them the pattern of the temple and now here beginning in chapter 44 he gives them the rules that are to be followed in the temple so that's what this is all about and the first rule is this, that the Levitical priests cannot go into the inner court. They have to stay outside, and they're the ones who keep order. So they're the administrative priests. They're the ones who run the temple, other than what happens in the inner court. And that's what he's talking about. And that's a, for them is a certain level of shame. Now, they'll be respected by the people, clearly, because they're the ones in charge. But yet, to them, it's a level of shame because they can't go to the inner court and do what the sons of Zadok do. And he says that very clearly in the, the next verses here. Notice in verse 15, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who keep charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. Now these are all saved people. Realize that. All these priests are saved people, but even of them, God makes distinctions and separates out the sons of Zadok for great honor to be able to go near to the Lord they go into the nave and the Holy of Holies where God himself exists. You know, you remember God said, this is my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. 
So God himself is in the nave and the holy of holies and the sons of Zadok go in there to minister. Now there are very precise ways in which they must do that that he begins to get into in these next verses that we look at. Now, let me just make sure I said everything that I wanted to say. Yeah, I think so. All right, so in 15 and 16, he sets apart the sons of Zadok. And they're allowed to minister in the house of the Lord while the non-sons of Zadok, who are Levitical priests, are outside doing all the administration. Now, I guess one of the things we should take from this and, and the scriptures speak about that, about this even for us, that after a true believer dies, there is a judgment seat of God that we go before. And we go there not for saved, unsaved. You go there for reward or great reward based upon the way that we live our lives now, and if God would have this level of punishment in the millennial kingdom for the priest who went astray from him, I think speaks to the fact that you and I, you know, the scripture speaks about saved, but just barely are saved with great reward. And so I don't know how often we have that mindset that what we do in this life leads to reward in the eternal kingdom, but it does. And whether we're faithful or unfaithful will have eternal, <coughs> eternal consequences that go on forever. I don't think we often think about that when when it comes to sin in our lives, when it comes to being obedient, when it comes to being faithful, when it comes to studying the scriptures, when it comes to incorporating these things into our life, do we have the mindset that this leads to great reward in the eternal kingdom of God? Now, that's not the total motive for what you do, right? You do it out of worship of God, but even Jesus Christ, when he was on the earth, lived faithfully because he looked forward to the reward that would be his in the kingdom. So if he had that perspective, certainly it would be right for us to have that perspective. And, and that will add a level of motive to our lives today that we often miss because we don't think that way. You know, we think we're here battling trying to do our best when in reality we've been empowered to do the best so that we might warrant, earn a great reward. That, I mean, that's the perspective of God. Go ahead. To me, I understand this as being differential rewards. Yeah. Not just 
Right. You know, I think Dante had this right, okay? You ever read the Inferno? And as you go further into the Inferno, the punishment gets greater and greater and greater? Well, I think the opposite is true also, that there are rewards and greater and greater and greater and greater rewards in the kingdom of God in for what we did in this life. So I think Dante had that part of it right, that there are levels in eternity. But I don't think we ever think about that, or very seldom think about that. We, we tend to think of rewards and material things. But I think the parable of talents tells you that the reward for service is opportunity for more service. You know, the one who created five talents and five what, talents uh, was given charger of five cents. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I agree. The, he's talking about the parable of the talents is not about physical possessions, but it's about eternal spiritual possessions. God talking about the, Jesus Christ talking about the kingdom of God, and if you're given five talents and you're faithful, there, and you earn five more, then you're given even more to be charge of. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And it could be in the millennial kingdom and beyond. So maybe someone who was very faithful is in charge of a very large area of the earth during the millennial reign and someone who wasn't so faithful maybe they're underneath that guy but still greatly rewarded and still in a glorified body so there's this minimal level but then there's more and who knows but i think the scripture gives us those ideas. Those are not things that we, I just made up. I think the scripture speaks to those things over and over and over again. Here's one of the places where it speaks. is about the sons of Zadok while they're in the kingdom. They're, they're true believers. They love the Lord, yet there's a level of shame because they realize why they can't go into the inner court. We give them back. We give them back. And why do we do that? <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 tell us, for by grace you have been saved. Right there, mm -hmm. if there was no reward, no crown, no anything, how glorious is that? Mm -hmm. For by grace you have been saved. But Ephesians 2, 10 tells us that even the good works that we've done, God has orchestrated the circumstances that allow us to then use the gifts he's given us right and 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 the more faithful you are the more crowns you have and the more you'll be able to worship and give them back to him and then that's what we're talking about um you know paul i love paul he talks about it's enough for me just to be able to walk in the triumph. And what he's talking about is that when a, a military leader went out, and then when he came back, there'd be this great parade 
with the leader at the front and then all the soldiers walking behind them and the people giving glory to them for having won victory. Paul says it's just enough if I can walk as one of the foot soldiers. He'll be given much more than that. But that's his mindset. It's enough just to be there. But look how faithful he was in his life. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the whole thing, this whole plan that we've looked at, all the way from when we started in Genesis, is all about leading to the glory of Jesus Christ and the worship of God. That's, I mean, that's why we, when you get to the Millennial Kingdom, that's all that it is. And there's nothing else, because nothing else matters, because the, the purpose of the whole thing is to give him glory. And this is just earthly glory. You can imagine what the heavenly glory is going to be like if this is the earthly glory. And this is Jesus Christ as a political leader. It's God as the religious leader, God the Father, but Jesus Christ is a political leader over the whole world. And people will say, hey, you can't say that. Well, you, you do say that, but he is being worshipped. He's being honored, but yet he's, he's administering the kingdom, that's what he does during the millennial kingdom. That's why you don't see him in the temple because he's got a kingdom to rule over. David, is it safe to, I think it is, but is it, one of the ways that I think uh, hinders our, our fruit, our service to God, is when the true believer continues, for whatever reason, to be immersed in false teaching of Well, I don't think so. Okay, I look at it this way. It's not only the religions that don't believe in God that distort our view. I think even the many churches where there are true believers distort the view because they won't take the time to go through something like Ezekiel because it's not edifying of the saints, but it is, because it gives you the right perspective of how to think about God and what he is doing in his world, that he is still sovereign over, and that he is leading to a purpose, and this is the purpose. So why would we not study it? But they don't, because you know they, they, they want to take um, the sweet part of the scriptures and not the whole of the scriptures. And you have to look at the whole thing in order to get the right perspective. I mean, just think about this. This study of the land started in Genesis and went to Deuteronomy of all places and then Joshua and now Ezekiel. Who goes through those? Well, I think this precisely helps us understand the judgment on the Levitical priesthood. Yeah. That, that's my point. We, we especially, have the truth, we have the lamb, we have Christ. 
refuse to believe them, right? So there's right. the issue is, are you going to let the scriptures fall on you, or are you going to put them underneath of you and elevate man and your will over those scriptures and their lies? And, and these Levitical priests, who were not the sons of Zadok, they decided to give up on God. And most of the Jews today have given up on God. Right. And that's deadly for your future well, and, and the further we go with the Jewish religious worship, the further they get from the moorings that are in the scriptures. Now, the only ones who are somewhat faithful would be the Orthodox. But those who are unorthodox and they're Jewish, their worship is as is, is bad as what was going on in the temple here. Yeah. Go ahead. When I was in uh, Florida two weeks ago, I was visiting my old church. You went to Florida? <laughs> but these are godly people. Oh, absolutely. But I asked different ones, have you ever studied the book of Ezekiel? And they just went blank. Like they never heard that before. Right. People don't study this. I'm telling you, they don't. I, I've never had one person. I've, I've, this is my second time through Ezekiel. I've never had one person tell me, I studied that in the past. Not a single person. No, I didn't. Because the church doesn't study Ezekiel. I don't know why, but they don't. Daniel, I, I don't. I don't understand how you can study Daniel without studying Ezekiel. I really don't. Um, and, and that'll become obvious when we get to Daniel, which may be next, by the way. It may only be a month or two out. So, I haven't, you, you need to pray for me that I know where we're supposed to go. Because I'm not exactly sure. David, on that, that last point, I think that's what we have to guard ourselves against right now. Is there is, there is a, a fragile belief that the scriptures are true. But we have abandoned the sufficiency of those scriptures to make us holy and faithful to God. Yeah, this, the scriptures are a lot more than just true. They, they are the power of salvation to the believer uh, and to the unbeliever. I mean, if, how you can be obedient to God without reading this, I have no idea. Because you can't. And, and how, if you, just to think rightly about God, I don't know how you can do that without being in the Word. Because the Spirit uses the Word to guide you into all right thinking, right acting, right living. I mean, that's why he gave us the scriptures and why they've been preserved. And um, they're, they're still every bit as powerful today as they were when he first spoke them. So um, we got to quit. It's 9.54. So... Uh, We'll pick up here next week with a description of the, Levit of the sons of Zadok, what they look like and what they do. Thanks for your time.